it's Loom Group's Andrea Lay, Backview's Melissa Burdick, the wizard of Woodland Hills Shree, and I'm PVSB from Flywheel, a division of Omnicom, and I'm coming to you today from the Catskills. Be playing Heckinger's Tuesdays and Thursdays. Before we get to the CPG Guys episode you've downloaded, it's the week of May 6th, and it's time for the Fresh Four, for curated news stories from the past week. We find them dependably intriguing. We hope you do too. We're brought to you through our partnership with Retail Wit, your one-stop shop for retail industry intelligence news, retailwit.com. It's retail right now. Over to you, Shree. In case you're wondering what this background is, I'm at, I'm at my father-in-law's house all the way in Chennai, India for the next couple of weeks. So what's the message of the week? Kroger Precision Marketing strikes a partnership with none other than Yahoo DSP. So Yahoo DSP advertisers now have access to KPM's audiences for both reach and measurement. Partnership marks KPM's second DSP partnership since last fall and ushers in a new focus on commerce media for Yahoo advertising in particular. Collaborations like this one will define the next phase of growth in retail media as retailers recognize the limitations of monetization on their own digital properties and seek incremental growth by expanding offsite. This is said by Sara Marzano, principal analyst at eMarketer. For advertisers, the delayed but still impending deprecation of third-party cookies, which is now on its way, continues to underpin every decision regarding digital advertising dollars. So solutions that safeguard their investments against that hold increasing appeal. Over to you, Andrea. Hello, Fresh 4 listeners. Walmart adds a new grocery line to its private brand's portfolio. Walmart has announced a new private label grocery brand called Better Goods. The line includes 300 items spanning categories such as frozen, dairy, snacks, beverages, pasta, soups, coffee, and chocolate. With most items priced under $5, Better Goods focuses on three key components, culinary experiences, plant-based, and made without. The retailer said Better Goods marks not only its largest private food brand launch in two decades, but also its fastest grocery brand brought to market. Over to you, Melissa. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, so, Savemark companies roll out in-store retail media networks. It's not enough that we have online. Now we're moving to in-store retail media networks. The Savemark companies plans to roll out in-store connect, an in-store retail media network powered by Quad Graphics Inc. To start, 16 of the grocery company stores will have digital screens, kiosks, end caps, shelf screens, and vertical banners throughout, allowing CPG partners to showcase promotions, product information, and recommendations to shoppers. The program will eventually roll out to all the Savemark companies, approximately 200 stores. This is Savemark's latest retail media effort, coming almost a year after a launch of its own retail media network. Over to you, Peter. Thanks, Melissa. Rite Aid expands Uber Eats' partnership for alcohol delivery in eight states. Nearly 1,000 Rite Aid stores will now offer alcohol delivery via retailers' expanded partnership with Uber Eats. Customers of legal drinking aid can get delivery from select stores in California, Idaho, Michigan, New York, Ohio, Oregon, Virginia, and Washington. Quote, our collaboration and trusted partnership with Uber Eats underscores our commitment to meet the evolving needs of our customers and providing a seamless digital shopping experience complements their busy lives, unquote, said Jeannie Walden, Senior Vice President and Chief Marketing Officer at Rite Aid, the U.S.'s third largest pharmacy retailer. That's it for the Fresh Four. Now on to the CPG Guys episode that you've downloaded. Welcome to another episode of the CPG Guys podcast. Our co-hosts, Sri Rajagopalan and Peter V.S. Bond, 
explore how brands and retailers engage with consumers online, in-store, and everywhere in between. And now, here are Sri and Peter. Hello and welcome everyone to this episode of the CPG Guys featuring Peter and Sri. And I would like to remind all of you that you can find all our content on cpgguys.com where you can find our weekly podcast as well as a takeaway on a profitability series we did way back in October of 2020 as well as you can rate us on the Apple platform as well as you can find us on 20 different podcast platforms. And we would love for you to take a second and go to ratethispodcast.com slash cpgguys because we'd love to hear from you what we got right, what we didn't get right, and what you'd like to hear from us. And we love seeing five stars in the sky. That always feels good, doesn't it, Peter? They look beautiful. I also want to remind our audience that starting late, uh, early December of 2020, we started a new piece called The Four where every Monday when we release our episode with our guest, we talk about the latest newsworthy items, the top four of them in our CPG industry and retail from the previous week. Please do check it out. Let us know how it is. And you can find the complete video on IGTV and also on this podcast. I want to, uh, we have a very special guest today, but prior to welcoming our special guest, I want to welcome, as always, week over week, episode over episode, longtime friend, a friend of the show, a friend of the industry, a data analytics, loyalty, UGC, and ratings and reviews, and content expert. Welcome, Peter Bond. The World Series champion Dodgers, that is, Shri. Uh, you're the Oprah to my Gale, the Orville to my Wilbur, the Jordan to my Pippin. Uh, we just go together, Shri. It's great to be here with you. For a while there, we could have had a Saquon or we could have had a Daniel Jones, but Looks like the promising run is coming to an end. I would say so. Ross, welcome to the show. So I'd love to introduce our guest today, the Director of E-Commerce and Category Strategy for Target at Johnson & Johnson. And we'd love for you to give us a brief interview for what you do and uh, what you do for Target and for J&J. Yeah, well, guys, first of all, I just want to say thanks for having me on the show. And thanks for uh, starting out with some baseball stuff. I'm a huge baseball fan, been to all 30 stadiums. Uh, Shri, as you mentioned. <laughs> I've only been to Russ 28. And I, <laughs> Russ and I have been to a Yankees-Twins games together. Yes, and of course the Yankees won because the Twins cannot beat the Yankees. So uh, so congrats on that, Shri. <laughs> but as uh, Shri mentioned, yeah, um, I, uh, I'm on the J&J team uh, on the Target account here in Minneapolis. Uh, I wear a few different hats, but e-commerce is the thread that ties everything together. So, uh, so first, I have a team uh, leading e-commerce, all of our e-commerce functionality with Target.com and mobile that comes, you know, all the way from uh, fundamentals like PDP stuff to innovation like driving social commerce. I also have another team that is a team of category managers and insights partners dedicated to Target. Um, and then I also get to expand some of my e-commerce horizons beyond Target as a member of J&J's digital acceleration team. So I'm a huge e-commerce uh, um, passionate guy. So excited to talk with you guys today. Awesome. And as Pedro would say, the Yankees are the twins' daddy. That's what he would say. Yes, he would. <laughs> so, Russ, your career is very intriguing when I look through your different experiences. You know, traditionally, brand folks come with Brand 101 and uh, haven't really crossed any career spans with a retailer. 
you're actually quite the opposite. You've spent most of your career in retail. You work for Target. You've been a buyer, which I think is extremely unique in this world of CPG and branding. And now you're actually on the manufacturer, aka vendor side. Can you tell us how different it is to be a buyer versus now being the one that needs to influence a buyer? And how differentiated the skill sets are in each role and other different motivations. And now more than ever, given e-commerce where bottom of the funnel has become supreme, those buyer skills have got to be really epic. Yeah. You know, I think as a buyer, you really go a mile wide and a foot deep. And I think when you're in a CPG customer facing team, it can be the inverse of that. Um, Ultimately, you know, I think at the end of the day, the focus needs to be on the consumer and the shopper. And that's what really brings everything together. And there truly is like a symbiotic relationship between the buying side and then the manufacturing side. Um, kind of like an Oreo cookie, right? Like, you know, you, you take the, the chocolate wafers and those are all right, right? And then you, you think about the, the creamy, you know, vanilla um, stuff. That's good too, right? Like they make double stuff of it. It's really good, right? But if you have either of those on their own, it doesn't really work. So when you put the two together, that's that's where the magic happens, right? And that's where I think, you know, in my, in my career anyway, being having that buying uh, history, having the CPG manufacturer side uh, influence now has really um, unlocked a lot of uh, a lot of value, I think, to to both Target, J and J, and ultimately, you know, the guest at the end of the day. Ross, welcome to the show. It's always a pleasure to have an industry veteran join us to talk about uh, the lovely role and relationship and collaboration between vendors and retailers. That's certainly been my experience as well. And knowing you're a Mets fan, which has a combination of both the good, the Dodgers, and the bad, the Giants, in your color scheme. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll at least give you 50% credit. I don't think that I need to tell you the pandemic we're all experiencing is having a profound effect on shopping behavior. Shri and I in previous episodes have referred to the tremendous growth that Target in particular has been experiencing in e-commerce. So given what is going on in the pandemic, I think we'd, and our audience in particular, would love to hear what it is that you and your team are doing in, to make sure that Target is taking the most advantage and succeeding as best as possible from an e-commerce perspective during these challenging times? Yeah. So obviously, you know, with the pandemic, shopper behavior has changed big time. You have um, all age ranges, um, you know, downloading apps, ordering online, doing pickup. And I would say the biggest thing that's probably driven Target's growth is, is drive up, which is, uh, you know, the click and collect where we're uh, curbside, as, as you might hear from other retailers. Um, you know, in terms of like how we support that, one, we're leaning into the strategy by just having really great content health. It, it starts with the PDP. Uh, we were lucky enough to be awarded, uh, J&J was uh, the number one content health scorecard across all target vendors for 2019. So we were in a good place going into it. And then I'd say like we've really focused on driving promotions that really promote um, profitable e-commerce sales like curbside, like drive up, um, to really incent the guests to take advantage of that rather than try to ship products to people's homes, which is a lot more costly for the retailer. And then, uh, you know, it comes right back to the CPG manufacturer um, in terms of JBP um, agreements. 
Hey, Ross, you mentioned the content scorecard. I think we'd all agree that Target has led the retail industry in defining what specifically they're looking for from a content perspective. Can you give us like a little bit of what you and your team do when that content scorecard is issued to figure out how you not only maintain what you're doing, but actually improve upon it for the next scorecard issuance? Yeah, Peter, um, we, you know, Target does a great job of really detailing out what all the opportunities are. So you can see kind of item by item what the issue is, if there is an issue. Um, and then we really dig in and we figure out like, what can we get from our internal brand teams? And then if we can't get something, maybe there's a video um, that we can't get on, on certain brands or items, we get scrappy on our team. So um, there's a company called Story Express that went through a target incubator um, that's able to create videos, kind of like a moving PowerPoint, if you will, but it's a way to create videos um, and really help uh, inform the guest about you know, product features. And it's something that we can create on our own team here. So that's been something that's really helped us um, kind of fill the gaps when we haven't been able to get something from our internal teams. And just one last question. When you create those wonderful videos, is that going in the image carousel? Is it going below the fold or both depending upon the product? Yeah, it's above the fold, right into the carousel. Okay, great. Exactly. Yeah, because I think we all know that from the, I've talked about this in prior episodes, all our research says the single most important part of the product page is that image carousel. Uh, 100%. Yeah. 100%. And we do everything we can to... Uh, to really maximize that great real estate. Um, you know, the content health scorecard is usually just gonna tell you, check the box if you have the quantity, right? Do you have yeah. five images or more? It doesn't really speak to the quality. And I think that's next level of what we need to figure out. And that's where, you know, creating these videos or bringing in user-generated content where we don't have lifestyle content from our internal yeah. teams has been really helpful, you know, to J&J. Wonderful. Shri? I did want to, you know, uh, move into your career at Target, but prior to asking that question, I am tempted to ask you, as we're discussing UGC and content, about ratings and reviews. Now, clearly there's a content scorecard you work with, you get it often, it's weekly, you can remedy based, you know, it's actionable, things of that nature. Uh, we talked about image carousel videos. What about ratings and reviews? Like how, what's, how do you guys handle that? How often do you have to focus on it? Is it a priority in the first place? Definitely a priority. Um, people will not purchase products that have under four stars. So we try to make sure that we're digging in and understanding where there are opportunities. You know, if an item does have under four stars, what can we learn about that, right? Like, what can we take back to our internal teams and improve about, you know, the products that we're offering, you know, to, to consumers? Um, but we also do a lot of syndication, right? So if people are leaving, you know, reviews on our brand site, those are going out to our retail sites. Um, and then sometimes we actually do some review seating, especially for new item introductions. We'll actually work with some companies that have a good um, um, funnel to some uh, some target guests, and then we send them free products. It is, you know, sponsored, um, you know, ratings and reviews that are out there. Um, so we are fully transparent with that, but we'd love to, you know, make sure that we're launching with really strong, you know, ratings and reviews um, right at launch. And Ross, is there like a magic number that's appealing for a consumer? Is it 10 reviews, 50 reviews, or it's more the larger, the better in general? I think the larger, the better to a certain point. You know, I like to see over 50 reviews on target.com. Obviously, if we're talking Amazon, it's probably a lot more than that. If you end up seeing 10,000 reviews on the Converse, 
does does that make you feel hey this is just way too big there's something that doesn't feel right over here yeah personal opinion yeah you you do wonder what's what's happening there certainly if you were to see that yeah absolutely so let's dive let's go back into your career as a buyer and a target right so I think Peter and I are very clear that we recognize and know that Target started its omni-channel quest way back. It's not a new phenomenon or a new buzzword or something like that in the industry. And so I'd love to learn from you, you know, when you were at Target, which has been four or five years now ago, was the omni-channel journey a priority? And if it was, what were you all specifically doing to evolve at Target, which was classically an in-store model? Was it all about click and collect, home delivery? You know, to my knowledge, y'all were early back at Target, all spectr- spectrums of e-com. So I'd just love to know how that evolved and, uh, you know, how it has become so elite at Target these days. Yeah, I think it's a great question, Trey. I think uh, there were a lot of visionary leaders at Target that started the kind of omni-channel integration back in 2012. Um, so before 2012, I was always at Target headquarters, but I was always on the store side of the business, if you will. In 2012, I moved over to Target.com in the digital business. And that's at the time when uh, senior leaders decided that teams needed to be together. Merchandising teams needed to be together. Because before 2012, Target.com was in a separate building five blocks down the street on Nicollet Mall versus the store organization. And in 2012, the teams came together. So it's still separate P&Ls. Um, but by, by just being co-located, being able to swing by people's cubes, making sure that you're in the same meetings together, talking to the vendors together, it really brought a lot of things, um, you know, forward from an omni-channel perspective. You know, I could give a quick example. When I moved to, to Target.com in 2012, I led the entertainment uh, division and we were selling prepaid cards. So, you know, like Apple, iTunes cards, Starbucks cards. And at that point we were actually selling them online, but we were actually mailing out the, the plastic, you know, to people. And you can imagine in such a, a, a small margin business, all those extra uh, steps and mailing and time wasn't very convenient, right? So, you know, my team and I, we wanted to start this digitally, digital fulfillment of it. Um, And unless we were co-located and really able to share like our vision and our strategy with the rest of the store team, I don't think we would have gotten the capital funding that we needed to be able to stand up uh, this business, which is now a huge business, you know, on Target.com and elsewhere and very profitable too, uh, just because the cost of fulfilling, um, you know, those gift cards digitally is is practically nothing. Um, So so that's at the stage um, in terms of like just co-locating the teams. And then Target continued to move forward. And about three years ago, Target fully integrated the store teams and the, and the digital teams so that buyers would own both sides of the business on that, on that desk. And that has further pushed Target ahead, I think, in the, in the e-commerce space or in the Omni space, I should say. I think both Shree and I would argue that e-commerce is a balance between short and long-term objectives, not radically different than than in-store model, a brick and mortar model. We'd love your thoughts on that and advice you have to merchandisers who are owning both, how they should balance uh, the short and long-term objectives, particularly leveraging analytics and shopper insights. Someone in this, there, Russ, I'd love to piggyback on that question and also ask, you know, as a category leader um, at target for a vendor is the primary metric for you short-term, long-term, or a combination of both? Yeah. So 
Definitely both. I would say like a lot of companies focus a little bit more on the short term in terms of sales results. But um, I think in the e-commerce space, we have a little bit more leeway to um, change that vision to what we're building for the long term. And I know J&J has been very supportive to me in that. Um, Peter, to go back to the original question, I think, um, you know, merchandisers need to focus on consumers and what they need or want, whether it's short term or long term. Yeah. Um, you know, and sometimes you need to make a short-term investment that can be painful um, to realize some long-term rewards, right? Like, you know, in the e-commerce world, right? Over-investing, you know, early on, uh, even when the business is small, has led to great results for Target and for, for a lot of others in, in the e-commerce space right now. Um, you know, I think about that with private label, right? You're over-investing in shelf space um, and support, you know, circular support when, when you launch a private label brand at a retailer to make a statement, to be able to build that brand so you get the long-term rewards there. Um, and I also think about it actually in the, the DNI space, and I, I can kind of bring this to light uh, just through an example of in, in my life. And um, I'm a member of the LGBTQ community. And back in 2012, um, I saw that there was a need, you know, for consumers to um, see more representation and inclusion, um, especially when it came to LGBT Pride Month. Um, a lot of you know, parades and different things like that. People want to show their support um, and be seen. And um, I was on a, our ERG, our LGBT ERG, and basically sold in the idea of, of launching um, a Pride T-shirt and a Pride greeting card assortment because I thought there was a bit of a miss. And I would say short-term wise, um, it was it was a little bit rough, right? Like we, we got some positive press, but there was a lot of really negative press. There were boycotts, you know, against Target for investing in the LGBTQ plus community. Um, you know, our call center when I was at Target got, you know, over uh, 10 times the amount of call volume of people upset, you know, with Target's decision to launch this merchandise back in 2012. Um and it had never happened at that sort of a scale before. Um, but there were a lot of really great leaders at Target who knew it was the right thing to do. It knew knew that it like really you know backed up the values of the of the company, and it was an investment. And if you look at like where things have gone over the last few years, um, I, I don't know the size of the Pride business versus the Father's Day business in June, uh, but Pride is 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 big, and everyone's taking advantage of it right now, right? So. Um, and I, and I do want to say, when I say taking advantage of it, that's probably the wrong word. Um, everyone's seen the opportunity of, of what consumers need and have been activating against that. But that's an example of where, you know, we made a short-term decision when I was at Target that was that was kind of rough. Um, but I think that's paid off over time. You know, speaking of Pride and LGBTQA, you and I have both been diversity uh, leaders in our quest, me on the Asian side, you on the LGBTQA. So I'd, I'd love to ask you what that personally means to you from a fulfillment perspective and taking others with you and opening doors for others. Anything you could share with us, I think will be awesome for our audience. Also, I'd love to learn, how do you feel? Do you feel the CPG industry has evolved well on the overall diversity journey? You know, uh, it's some of the most rewarding stuff I've ever done in my career. I've continued in the Pride space at J&J with our Care with Pride program, which uh, which has launched with uh, Listerine, um, OGX, uh, Neutrogena. And I think the key there is not just launching products to sell products. It's launching products to give back to the community and invest in the community. You have to do it in a really authentic way. 
Otherwise, you get accused of rainbow washing or for breast cancer, putting, you know, making something pink, pink washing, right? So for me, it's, it's, it's all about trying to um, replicate the, the marketplace we live in and have people see um, themselves represented out there and have that choice, you know, to, to purchase, you know, what they need. You know, in terms of like how, you know, major companies are doing at DNI, that's a bigger question. I think there's a lot of opportunity that has been brought to light this year where, there, where there, there's, there's a lot of companies missing the mark when it comes to um, DNI opportunities, especially with the black and the brown community. But I would say from my learnings, I think you have to be really um, careful to make sure that you're doing it in the right way. It's authentic. It's really employee led um, and ERGs are being, um, you know, really, uh, you know, counseled on for their advice and what is the right way to move forward for, for brands and retailers that are interested in getting into the space. Thanks, Russ. That's actually very inspiring. Uh, we appreciate that feedback. I want to shift over to the term that uh, is often used. Some consider it uh, a, a, a word that should never be mentioned. Just yesterday, Shri and I were speaking with someone who said he never uses the word. Um, so it's a bit controversial. Can you, can you talk to us about wh- what omni-channel means to you and specifically what your team does to influence different um, consumer touch points on the spectrum of, of engaging? with consumers. Yeah. yeah it kind of makes me laugh right the word keeps changing whether it's uh, you know omnichannel digital e-commerce etc uh it's kind of like prince right like prince changed his name a million times the artist formerly known as the artist formerly known as but whatever you want to call it it's important right and and, yeah. and it's legendary right so yeah. you know to, to me omnichannel call it what you want it just means frictionless right like how do you provide a consistent experience no matter what the channel is? I think it's as simple as that. Um, but you call it what you want. But that's that's what ultimately, that's what we try to do. We try to make things frictionless. So when you think about supporting Target so that a consumer, a guest, whether they're in a store or they're online, has access to the content on your products that accelerate the path to purchase and dissuades them from having to seek that content elsewhere. How specifically are you trying to make sure that 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 works in Target's favor? Yeah, I mean, tying it all back together, I think like, you know, it's all about trying to make sure you have the right content that's consistent wherever that guest is. Uh, wherever that consumer is. So like this year, um, Neutrogena, which is a J&J brand, became the first brand to integrate with Target from a social commerce standpoint um, with Instagram checkout. Um, because we want to make sure, again, it's a consistent experience. We want to make sure the content is out there. And even if that guest isn't on Target.com or in a Target store and they're just kind of browsing in Instagram, how do we make sure that we're coming to life there? And it's, you know, like I said, a consistent experience and, and try to convert, you know, wherever wherever the shopper is. One, one last question before I hand it to Shri, uh, and this is more of a prediction. Um, there's, in the midst of the pandemic, there's pre-pandemic. Post-pandemic, where does this balance between in-store and, and e-commerce kind of settle out? Are we changed forever? Is there any going back to, to what it was before? 
We're certainly changed forever, but uh, people will come back to stores. We did see people come back to stores throughout the pandemic and people want to come back to stores, right? I just think it's going to be, stores are going to be focused a little bit more on discovery, surprise and delight, right? Like when you come to Costco, who doesn't love coming in and and seeing that treasure hunt and all that newness and excitement when you first walk in the store? Uh, I think people miss that, right? If people are trying to be safe and they're not going into stores right now. So people will come back, but the experience that we will see in stores might be changed a bit. And I think a lot of like CPG companies that have kind of basic products that are basic replenishment products, I think over time, I'm not saying anytime soon, and this is just my opinion, I think the floor pad is going to shrink, you know, for, for some of those products because people will be more comfortable getting them online and getting them feel, fulfilled maybe when they're visiting the store parking lot and they're coming into the store to do more of that surprise, delight, um, you know, treasure hunt type stuff. Excellent. Thank you. You know, speaking of omni-channel and the store, no matter what the dif- uh, definition is, like you said, it's about frictionless commerce. I'm tempted to ask you, because what works best, at least from the learnings I've had over the course of my e-commerce journey, and I'm sure, Peter, you would conclude with me, is for a scaled brand, the best P&L friendly option perceived at the highest level is click and collect, which, of course, manifests itself in many names such as click and pick, Bopis, buy online, pick up in-store. Any opinion on that one? One of the things I fear in that space is you know, traditionally, most brands have built a PL based on basket behavior and being part of a shopping trip, a basket, pantry loading, et cetera, and then driving impulse in the process. Click and collect is the antithesis of driving a basket or impulse. How do you feel about that? And do you think it is the future of this frictionless commerce that we call Omni? Yeah, there's a lot of things here. So one, click and collect is the future right now. Um, it is the most profitable way to do e-commerce sales. I still think there's an opportunity to build a basket, even with click and collect, understanding like more personalization um, and, and having more um, you know, discovery happen in the process of, of checking out right for, for e-commerce sales, uh, for click and collect sales. Um, so at this point with where profitability is, click and collect is where things need to go. I'm not so sure that that will be the long, long-term future um, when there's more automation and self-driving you know, cars are ubiquitous. Um, we might see a renaissance in, in shipping to home just because the operational costs can come down a lot. So I think we just need to be ready and flexible and adaptable to see you know, where things go. But for right now, uh, I would be all in on, on click and collect just from a profitability standpoint. Yeah, I think Shri and I are of the same mind as you that particularly in this country, with the exception of Manhattan, where you can pull up to a building and drop off 60 orders, that the the cost structure of doing one-off deliveries and then spending 90% of the time driving from one drop-off location to the other to do a single drop-off is not economically feasible. So um, I think I think you're spot on there. My last question for you is you were very fortunate in that you were at Target during a time when they were avant-garde in combining their in-store and their online merchandising activities. What advice do you have to contemporaries, be it on the retail side or or even on the brand side, as as the industry transforms in that direction, what kind of things should they be focused on to be successful? 
I think, you know, as you think about kind of like the omni-channel journey and what makes people successful, or at least in my case, what has made me successful is really learning by doing, um, building empathy, immersing myself um, in the consumer shoes and the consumer experience. Um, I learn a lot um, based on what I can do digitally with other industries, and I figure out how I can apply that to the business that I work on now. Um, you know, case in point, I think with COVID, um, since it started, my husband and I have led a 100% digital life. Um, we haven't had to swipe a credit card or do an analog purchase. Um, and there's so many, so many things I've learned and so many people doing things so well. Um, you know, in terms of going to the gym, we used to go to a local gym. We discovered the Peloton app for fitness. It's unbelievable, right? Um, doing Teladoc, you know, for doctor needs, like the dermatologist. It was, it was so. Fa- yeah, Shri is uh, is flexing his. If muscles. you're watching the video, Shri is Shri is showing his. Uh, I don't know, Shri. I think your arm may be more pasty white than mine is. But in any event, <laughs> sorry to take you off topic. It's very distracting for me, especially Shri. So, I can uh, imagine. Appreciate that. Um, but, you know, um, teledoc, right, for doctor needs, uh, like the dermatologist. Um, and think about, like, how do you attach maybe some dermatologist-recommended brands to that sort of experience? I think there'll be new partnerships in the future there. Um, you know, even Postable, right? We, we needed to send some, some greeting cards, could make it into the store. Um, you can go to the site called Postable, write a great greeting card. It looks beautiful. It looks completely handwritten. They send it yeah. to uh, to your person, right? Uh, that you need to, to send a, a note to. So um, I think I just I learned by doing and, and really embracing, you know, everything around you and figuring out how you could take those learnings from, from some other industries and apply it to your business. Ross, you know, discussing the diversity and inclusion journey earlier today and uh, generally giving your advice on the omni-channel journey, what advice would you have for folks who want to be part of the diversity and inclusion journey, perhaps as an ally or be just part of the journey all the way and uh, influence change in the industry? Great question, Sri. Um, I think what, first it comes down to listening, right? So learn, right? Don't just ask your team members who might be diverse um, how they would approach something. Do some research, Google some things, right? Like have some knowledge. Um, so that you're not just relying on team members who fit a certain diversity um, bucket to kind of be your one-stop shop for, for everything that you want to learn in the DNI space. So do some research on your own, read some books. Then, you know, I think it's really important to invest in talent, start a conversation, listen to that diverse talent, um, and see, see where, where there's opportunities for the company. Maybe it's internal uh, stuff that, that needs to be addressed for, for employees. And, and maybe there's some external facing you know, opportunities that are out there too. But chances are there's probably, probably some of both. I think you know, joining an ERG um, as an ally is something that um, I've appreciated for, for people throughout my career um, who've just wanted to help and, and, and be there for the cause. And sometimes just showing up is, is, uh, is all that person needs to see, to know that you've got their back, they can bring their whole self to work and they can give you their very best. So that'd be my advice there. Thank you so much for graciously answering that and also providing feedback on how folks could become part of the diversity and inclusion journey for our audience. A reminder, you can find all our content on cpgguys.com. We would love for you when you have a moment to tell us how you feel about this show. You can go to ratethispodcast.com slash cpgguys and leave us a rating and a review and perhaps tell us what you'd like to see next. Ross, I want to thank you sincerely for joining us on this podcast today. 
And if people want to get in touch with you or get to know more about you, is LinkedIn the best way? LinkedIn is the best way. And I don't always just accept a random um, you know, connection. So if you can mention that you heard me on the CPG guys, that would be really helpful. Awesome. Peter, as always, thank you for doing this with me week over week. It's a pleasure, sir. It's nice to hear that the CPG guys have some clout when it comes to getting Russ's attention. So, Russ, I'm looking forward to a late summer game at Target Field. Stadium we can watch a little baseball this summer, this summer coming up. God, we need it. Um, we do need but, it. But thank you for joining us. This was a tremendous conversation. And Shri, thank you. Thank you, folks. And we will close out this episode with a last reminder that in the month of November and December 2020, we ran an Instagram series on IGTV called One Question, One Answer, where Peter and I took upon several meaty and heated topics in the industry, and we try to answer them, at least our viewpoint, in less than five minutes. Do check it out. And with that, we will see you again soon next week. Thank you. Content in this podcast episode is provided for general informational purposes only. By listening to our episode, you understand that no information contained in this episode should be construed as advice from CPG Guys LLC or the individual author, hosts, or guests, nor is it intended to be a substitute for research on any subject matter. Reference to any specific product or entity does not constitute an endorsement or recommendation by CPG Guys LLC. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. The views expressed by CPG Guys LLC do not represent the views of their employers or the entity they represent. CPG Guys LLC expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of reference to or inability to use this podcast or the information we present in this podcast.